0: Welcome to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart, the podcast where we chat with athletes, coaches and industry professionals about the benefits of being involved in sport beyond just performance. Today, we have an Australian legend in the sport of triathlon, Steve Foster competed on the world stage in the 80s and 90s, finishing third at the 1990 ITU World Championships. Steve not only has multiple Australian titles to his name, but also an impressive coaching career. Steve shares with us what hardships have taught him throughout his 36 years in the sport. This chat is not one to miss. So today we have Steve joining us. Uh, Steve Foster is an amazing triathlete himself and a triathlon coach currently. Steve, can you tell us about your sporting journey?
1: Well, um, first of all, let's just say, uh, let's change it from is to was <laughs> uh, a world-class triathlete. I often say uh, uh, the Lost Files, where are they now? And, uh, oh, we found him somewhere. Um, yeah, so. I hope for all those listeners out there who are athletes or have children who are athletes or have brothers sisters or whoever it might be, uh, never give up on them because Mm -hmm. I'm the absolute epitome of the non-athlete who end up being, well, uh, ranked number one in Australia and one of the top in the world. I'll I'll go through, because a lot of people won't know of me or have ever heard of me and especially from other sports. So I will go through some of the, um, Uh, The things that I achieved uh, to get a better understanding but um, let's go back to when I was a child Um, I was the uh, the overweight slightly overweight kid who uh, preferred to watch cartoons all day long Uh, home from school sandwiches cartoons um, Saturday morning up at 5 30 ready for the Thunderbirds for those young people you won't know who the Thunderbirds are um, you know, And I'd watch TV all day long until night time. <laughs> and then I'd read the same thing Sunday. Anyway, there are three types of kids in sport. The kids that you know are destined to be champions, world champions. You know they are. And everyone will push them through and push them towards that. Some of them won't because they had it too easy. They were naturally gifted. They didn't understand or respect fully what they had and couldn't handle the pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they were world class. Some of them make it through and become the absolute heroes and champions of sport. Yeah, we could sit here for the next hour naming names. But then there's a second level of kids in sport, the ones who say, I'm going to be a champion and who are told they're not good enough. Hmm. Don't waste your time, kid. You'll never be good enough. You're not good enough. The ones where the adults will go to the to say, you're not good enough. Then there's the third level, the ones who are not good enough to be told they won't be good enough <laughs> and are virtually left alone to their own devices just to potter around and no one ever gives them at the time of day well i was one of those kids (laughs) right no one believes me right you will not find my name in any record books in the swimming because i know you came from a swimming uh, competitive swimming background but you'll never find my name in any of the swimming record books not even in the club record books and Mm -hmm. to give you an example and you'll understand this fiona and for those who are listening from the sport of swimming you'll know that even to qualify for state titles you have to Uh, be able to match their minimum standard entry time Mm -hmm. to get into the heats to apply uh, for the state titles now i was that slow i couldn't even do that so whilst all the other kids in the squad were going up to state titles i'd be at home and i never could understand this but all i I said i said my father one day i'm going to levy games one day (laughs) and i was about 12 and i remember him saying oh that's good that's good i look back now i knew fully that he knew i wasn't good enough but um, I didn't know that. You know, so the 1-8 and time uh, when I was 16, I qualified for the state titles time for the tournament is backstroke. And I qualified by about one and a half seconds under the qualifying times just to get into the heats. Yeah. And I was that nervous. You know, after five years of, of swimming and, you know, you know, the seven, eight sessions a week, mornings and nights, you know all about that. Uh, it's a hard gig. You know, you're up at five o'clock in the morning, uh, back at four in the afternoon after school. And um, I was that nervous that I stuffed up every turn of the three turns. in I went under the qualifying time by two seconds. I was that humiliated at 16 that I didn't know what to do. I, I just couldn't even face my father. I went and sat in the change rooms underneath the pool uh, for about an hour before coming up. About two weeks later, um, Swimming Victoria sent us a letter in the mail fining us
2: because a you financial went...
1: fine for time wasting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, said, I said, that's it. I'm out, I'm done. And I was just getting into surf life-saving then. So I was with Gunamata, one of the most treacherous beaches in Australia. Uh, Now, the club didn't have much in the way of competition, high-level competitors, but we used to win the patrol, state patrol competition every year. You know, it was wonderful. And the bunch of guys, they smoked, they drank, they didn't care, but they were wonderful. They were the most wonderful bunch of guys and girls to support you guide you and look after you as teenagers wonderful magnificent now i started shining through a little bit in the board paddling events i started getting some some third placings and stuff at local competitions I thought, oh this is all right and then all of a sudden the age of 17 i kid you not if you've ever been in a room in the dark at nighttime and you switch a light on the light comes on and it brightens up the whole room you also you know where you are triathlon came to my life at 17 it was like a light bulb switched on in my head and all I knew was this is my future. For those who studied or study um, the further unknowingness of the universe, you know, human the, the consciousness of the universe go past the facts and figures, electrons and protons and neutrons and atoms and so on. And to you know the spiritual side? What do you want to call it? Um, the consciousness and connection of the universe and so on. Uh, it was like it, people are that you, you'll understand that there's your destiny is already set. Mm. Right, And I just locked in to what my destiny was. Because there's no other understanding. All of a sudden, I went complete tunnel vision. Nothing else mattered in my life. Um, I was doing year 12. I was doing like maths and physics, chemistry, all the hardest subjects. Everything I've done in my life has always been the hardest thing. I've always (laughs) suffered. I don't know why I didn't take the the path in life that that was more enjoyable and fulfilling. Everything was hard. All of a sudden, I got through year 12. I started a degree in biophysics. I was going to become a biophysicist, whatever the hell that is. Um, basically, it's, it's studying the human physiology using instrumentation. Um, I deferred for a year and went full time as a professional. I was that obsessed. And all of a sudden, I started winning races within 12 months. I won prize money. Um, I thought, oh, this is it. I'm set. I went back to university next year at Swinburne Institute of Technology, for those who live in Victoria. And within three days, I just looked around the classroom during the master tutorial. And I won't say the actual real four-letter words I used in my head. I'll just say it a bit more politely. I'm looking at all these students saying, what the hell do you want to do with your life? <laughs> That's my more polite four-letter word I was using to myself. But in actual fact, unknown to me at the age of 19, I was actually saying, what the hell do I want to do with my life? Mm. I came home mm. and said, Mum and Dad, I'm quitting. I'm going full-time triathlete. Much to their absolute horror. My father said to me, son, if you're going to do it, you do it 100%, we'll back you you got it 100% or not at all? And I said, yep. And I dedicated myself. And um, you know, by the time I was 20, 20 or 21, I won my first Australian title. 21, I'd won my first Australian triathlete of the year, first Australian triathlon series. Just short of 22, I'd gotten third at the World Triathlon Championships, professional. And this is an event that takes about, it was taking us around about the hour 47, hour 48. So about 108 minutes. Myself and one of the world's greatest living triathletes today, A guy called Mark Allen America. Uh, For those who know the Hawaiian Man, he's won it six times. One of the greatest ambassadors in the sport we've ever seen. Uh, We were running neck and neck, sprinting, um, chasing down the leader at that stage. A guy called Mike Pig, who had a minute and a half in front of us off the bike, the 40-kilometre ride, ready for the 10-kilometre run. We got him down to 20. I got him. Mark out sprinted me for the line and finished 16 seconds behind. I was 21 seconds behind. I was 21 seconds off winning the world title at the age of 21. Wow. Anyway, so therefore my career blossomed from there. So basically I've gone from absolute zero to hero, you know, in, in sport. A kid who was largely ignored, mm. uh, one of the hardest trainers in the squad, but just didn't get it. I just was not getting anywhere, um, to being a world-ranked triathlete and so on. So what I'm saying to all you listeners out there, just because a kid doesn't show talent, don't give up on them because all of a sudden one day the light bulb might switch on in their mid-teens or even late teens, and bang, they just take off because something just changes in them. I don't know what it was with me. There's a guy from Australia called Craig Alexander. He's a living legend of the sport. He's won the Hawaiian Ironman three times. Um, He came from a soccer background and at the age of 24 took up triathlon. Mm -hmm. He was overlooked for the Olympic Games and said, stuff you, Triathlon Australia. Um, And he took up long distance triathlon and won the Hawaiian Ironman three times, one of the most decorated triathletes in the world. And he started at the age of 24. Dave Scott, another American, who won the Hawaiian Ironman five times. Sorry, it might be six. He didn't start the the triathlon until the age of 24 because he he got into the sport. The sport is only new. It's only started in about 1977, 1978. He got in early. But 24 years old, he's a swimmer and a water polo player. So what I'm saying is, you know, there are a lot of athletes, just because they don't, they're not champions as children, don't ever discount the fact they might not end up being champions later on, right? You've got to look further than the physicality and, and where they are at that stage with their physical career or how fast they're going or how talented they are on the, on the court or in the pool or on the track or whatever it might be. I've actually said to some of the juniors I've coached over the years at the school where I coach at, uh, I said, do you want to know the secrets to being a champion? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you're not going to like it. No, we want to know. We want to know. You know, they all think there's uh, that silver bullet, that magical secret thing. that'll make them champion. And this is what most of the companies out there make their multi-millions of dollars off from the uh, product companies and nutrition companies. They all think they're selling the secret formula to being a champion, I'm telling you, there is no secret formula. And I tell the kids, you want to know the secret formula? They go, yeah, yeah. I say, you're not going to like it. You know, then weeks later, I'll say, you still want to know that that the, the answer? And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I say, you're not going to like it. And I finally give, in, I, I finally give them the answer. I said, there's only two things you need to be a champion. Well, there are more, but there are two basic things you need to be a champion. And, and when you, if anyone who wants to study every world-class champion, every Olympic champion, every gold medalist, whatever, you'll find these two things in every single one of them. And that is, you're gonna have the right attitude. Number one, the right attitude. And number two, you're gonna how to suffer beyond human normality.
2: Mm.
1: All right. Mm. Suffer, sacrifice, pain, blood, sweat, and tears. You see the champions, the world's best champions that that, that you all idolize and follow. And you, know, you buy their running shoes, or you buy their football, or their cricket bat, or their tennis racket because they're, you know. And you think, oh, and, and the company's saying, um champion because they buy a product no these people are already champion beforehand then the company sponsored them and then said that's why they're the champion no it's all rubbish sorry companies out there you're going to hate me but i'm just telling the truth what it is you'll see those champions on the winner's podium with a big smile right giving interviews and they're laughing and they're happy and you think oh my goodness they live a wonderful life 99 percent of the time you don't see them behind the scenes, when they are curled up in a ball, crying,
2: mm.
1: saying, I can't do this anymore, uh, in pain, suffering debilitating injuries that put them out for months at a time. And like, I've been out for a whole year with broken bones, and I watch doors close, sponsors walk, uh, deals dry up, and people just leave you, and you think, what am I going to do? And you've got to fight back. That's the true side so of a champion. Not those who are winning, but those who are knocked down can get back up and keep going. That's a true sign of a champion. But, yeah, you've got to suffer terribly. You know about that. It's the hidden world that you, no one gets to see. The average person who goes for a, a 10K fun run or goes for a game of golf or plays a social game of tennis or goes to the gym three times a week, you don't see the suffering. And you think you're hurting there in the gym and, and feeling the pain when you're lifting weights or, or you know, doing a 5K you know, park run on, on a Sunday. No, that doesn't even register on a world-class athlete. Uh, in what they have to go through and suffer. Now, every, out of every world-class athlete you see who goes on to live a wonderful life, you know, with fame, fortune, and said that was a wonderful journey, there are going to be another nine athletes who are, you know, who are broken, uh-huh. uh, mentally, emotionally, who commit suicide. Um, they're the ones who just can't cope. I'm not saying that's why. The sport didn't do that to them. It was their personality type and then their mentality and their constitution and their strength of character. That's what does it. That's not to say that everyone's going to do that. No, no, no. I've met some of them who worked in, you know, working in the back of a factory, They're world, world champions, you know, one year and next minute, they're working. nothing's wrong working in the back of a factory. But when you know the level it gets to, to get to that level, you say, why can't they use that same level to succeed in the rest of their life? And mm-hmm. some of them do. You see them on TV, as commentators doing wonderful, You know, the footy commentators and so on, the tennis, everything. There are a lot that fall by the wayside and they disappear. You never hear about them again. And so what I'm saying here, on top of all this about being a champion athlete, you've got to have a great network around you to watch out for you, whether it's friends, family, or your associations or so on, which I think is sadly lacking in a lot of sports. And I've I've met AFL footballers who were promised the world after they retired um and uh they were discarded um i've met a few or one of them in particular who scraped himself back up together and now has his own real estate uh real estate business yeah he's done very well he and his wife have done very well uh but you know he talked to me about the problems associated with finishing sport and then having to reintegrate back into mainstream society which to a lot of world-class athletes is extremely hard because they've, they've Sacrifice some from young teenage years, like you know the Grant Hacketts and the Ian Thorpes and so on. Uh, you, you've watched them go off the rails, and people say, "Oh, what's wrong with them? Yeah, they've got lots of money. They should be happy." No, what they suffered from a young teenager all the way through, they never actually lived a normal life, and people don't understand that. They only see them on the smile on their face on the on the podium, and it's it's scary to think that some of them are going to fall through the cracks when they try and re-enter mainstream society. Some of them do, some of them don't, you know, and um yeah it's it's a tough world. Uh, a lot of world class athletes because they've had to get to the level they are, they are they do go a little bit um a little bit funny sometimes. You'll see some eccentricities in some of them. You think oh it's just a bit strange. No, because sometimes that's what it takes to push to another level to be a world class athlete. You've got to be a little bit different. You've got to have that something different that little bit um, above normal. Some people will say a little bit loopy, a little bit eccentric, uh, a little bit crazy, a little bit everything, all in the package. But this is not to scare anyone away from the whole process. No, no, no. A lot of world-class athletes have gone on to be incredible ambassadors, great family people, politicians, company directors, you name it. And But I'm just opening up the other side, that there's two sides to mm. that world. When I finished, uh, I should have gone back into – to university and got my degree or so young, but I, I fell into coaching because someone suggested it and I've had an interesting journey. It's been an incredible journey meeting people and traveling the world in Australia, but yeah, it's, it's been a very interesting road. It's been a, almost as difficult as being a professional athlete, uh, being a coach.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, Steve, the role of a coach is still part of your sporting journey because you haven't left the sport. You're still influencing the next generations to come. So I think that's still important to touch on.
1: We have to be a jack of all trades, master of none, that's an old-fashioned saying. In other words, we have to be coach. We have to be problem solver. We have to be mentor. We have to be psychologist. We have to be shoulders to lean on. We have to be everything. We have to be the gopher. Uh, we have to be the whipping post for for the athlete who's going to pour everything out onto you. And especially for those who might aspire to be a coach, be prepared Mm -hmm. because when that athlete fails or doesn't go well, you will be the first in line to be blamed. Those who are AFL uh, fans, every time a team is going bad, who's the first one to go? It's the coach. It's amazing how many coaches get sacked immediately Rather than look at the overall synergy of the players and the mentality of the players and so on, it's not just the coach. Uh, But anyway, there's another thing too if you are a full time coach, expect to do this seven days a week. I'm not saying nine to five every day, but you're going to be on call seven days a week. You have to have a very, if you're in a relationship, you have to have a very uh, understanding partner. One thing you want to learn as a coach too is that you need to make sure you separate your work as a coach from your relationship and your social side of it or else it'll overwhelm you and take your whole life, and it, I've watched it ruin relationships. One of the first things I say when I coach age group athletes who are you know, full-time workers, family people, is I say, if you're gonna do any of these long-distance triathlons, you need to go and sit down with your partner and cut a deal, cut a contract, whatever it is, uh, and let them know, because they're gonna suffer as much as you along your journey, your four o'clock, 4 a.m. starts to get those two hours in before training your grumpy moods on the weekend, you're uh, no longer having a sleep in on a Sunday morning, you know, with your partner and then go out for a lazy breakfast at 10 a.m. No, that'll all disappear, especially in the long distance sports, like running triathlon, cycling, you name it, uh, swimming. Um, you've got to cut kind of deal with your partner, not only as an athlete, but as a coach too, to say yeah. that this is the journey I'm going to be on. And so you've got to let them know that at the end of this or the end of the event or whatever it might be, that they're going to be rewarded for their sacrifice and suffering that they also had to endure whilst you were either preparing for that race or as a coach preparing those athletes and i 've watched many uh, relationships uh, fail. the sport doesn 't cause the, the relationship breakup. it just brings out what might be hidden in mm-hmm. the relationship so it 's a truth maker really so you know as a coach you're going be very balanced only a small amount coach you're going to make good money mm-hmm. from their Profession, so you've got to become a good business person as well, and know not only how to coach, but how. If you're a good coach, but don't have a damn clue about business, good luck. Then you need a business partner or a coaching partner who you run the business together as a team, or have a network of people around you who can do it for you. Otherwise, you've got to be a very good business person, and you can make good money. I mean, you can make a good living out of you know paper dolls if if that's your hobby, if you know how to market a business. So as a coach, you've got to know how to market, be a great marketer and a great business person as well. Equally as good as being a coach, and here's another secret: as a coach, you can have all the knowledge in the world, be one of the greatest coaches in the world. But if you don't have the ability to um, uh, relate to your athletes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: forget it. All right, you can be an average coach, but if you're a great people person and know how to relate with people, you will be an absolute champion because the athletes will will work it out as well. There's an old saying I don't know if you ever heard it. I can't remember who told me this. Um, uh, a good coach will be redundant in five years. Mm-hmm. What it means is if a good coach coaches that athlete correctly, that athlete should know enough of how, to, how it all works within about five years. The athlete doesn't mean to say the athlete must leave the coach. No, they can still work to be beautifully, work as mentor, coach, uh, athlete, and so on. But that coach will now be able to leave a lot of responsibility in that athlete's hands because that athlete will know how to how to handle it and what to do and so on. You know, the, the athlete can then become a great mentor for the younger athletes as well it's, it's wonderful that way but it's like anything um just slightly diverging um a couple of guys i i do a lot of open water swimming with well you know time to time they have a roof tiling business and they're mad and uh for a challenge run, they're, they're extremely successful they do all the big you know the big estates you know and you know, they're made a fortune rough as guts <clears throat> and uh for a challenge one day, I went out and roof tiled with them uh, for two days. That's uh, the toughest trade in the world. And, uh, you know, and I, I did all the crappy work, you know, and, and we lifted two roofs that day onto the house, you know, through all the tiles. And I said, Steve, you've just lifted 30 tonnes. That's 30,000 kilograms. I nearly fell over sideways. Uh, but I watched them all day. And I said to them afterwards, I said, you guys are as professional at your job as any world-class athlete I've ever seen or known. Except you're not riding or running or or hitting a tennis ball. You're actually walking along the battens on the roof. They were walking across those, you know, the roof struts, uh, blindfolded, like they were one and and the same. It was amazing. So as a coach, it's it's created a great journey for me to see and meet people. It's brought me out of my shell. I was an introvert uh, and a loner. And I've had to learn to become an extrovert uh, and, uh, and get out there and learn how to uh, uh, relate to people and talk to people. So it's been a wonderful journey in bringing me out of my shell. Now, I'm not a champion uh, public speaker. I'm not a champion in anything in that way. But I've learned to be reasonably good at it through sheer necessity that oh. I had to learn. And then I'm still learning as a coach. All of a sudden I realized when I first started coaching, I thought, oh, uh, my way is the best way and everyone's going to train the way I train. And I learned very quickly that you can't do that. You have to individualize and learn a person's personality. One person, you hold their hand and spoon feed them. The other person, you've got to kick their ass and tell them they're they're worthless. I don't mean it literally. But if you did the opposite to each of those athletes, you'll lose them. Mm. Um, I mean, look at Ian Thorpe. I don't know the background here. You might know, and if you do be interested to hear, Uh, you know, right in the midstream when he was winning gold medals, he changed coaches. So there's got there has to have more to it than just a great coach who knows how to bring up athletes. You've got to have a great personality, you've got to have a great rapport with your athletes. Mm-hmm. You've got to get on well. If you don't get on well, it's going to be a terrible journey. And you could be a world class athlete, have a world class a world class coach, have a world class athlete. You will split. Mm. But if you get on well together, you've got to have a wonderful rapport. I've um, I've ruined relationships and I've lost athletes because. I didn't approach it correctly. Um, and I'll put my hand up and say I'm the first one to be guilty for that because I didn't understand enough. I became too obsessed with uh, success that I became uh, well obsessed and everything and everyone else became a second priority to me. And that is almost uh, suicide, relationship suicide. <laughs> so anyone who wants to be a coach will remember that. You've got to be able to separate your work from your life and your home and have a very balanced lifestyle. And if that means going and seeing a, um, a sports psychologist or working with a life coach or doing it, I haven't done that yet, but if, if that means doing that, you go and do that. You'll pick up things you didn't know and you'll realise it wasn't until I lost that I actually learnt mm. um, from the mistakes of doing this.
0: That's definitely really good advice, Steve, because I know that when you – Separate the sport from your identity and have things that are just outside of the sport, it really does help.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Through our podcast here, I will talk about some of the sadder things in life. I'm not going to be all happy. Life's not always happy. I mean, reality is that it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, I'm happy to talk about all that. I've coached a lot of people over the years, I've coached a lot of married pe- people who are in relationship with families, and I've watched the, the partner uh, suffer terribly. Because the athlete became obsessed, and our sport of triathlon is a very obsessive sport. It either draws obsessive people, or it does help create obsessiveness in people. Being three sports t- uh, poured into one, and the sad part, and I've watched this because I love seeing and observing as a coach. You'll probably find that you love seeing people watching and observing and watching. I I I, I love just going to town somewhere and just sitting and watching people on the cabbage, Watch people. I could do that all day, anyway, And I watched some of the partners. This is the sad part. They finally let go. They finally surrendered to the athlete that they're involved with, uh, and watching that that life slowly die from them mm-hmm. in letting go. That they realised there were going to, not going to be any sleep-ins and lazy breakfasts on a Sunday at ten o'clock down the, at the local cafe, and watching the day go by. That might only happen for a month a year at the end of the season. So those partners actually surrender and give up the fight. It was actually more interesting and more satisfying watching them fighting over. See, we've a triangle, the sport, the athlete, and the athlete's partner. Yeah. it was the, the partner was fighting against the sport for their partner, and I found that it was a, a struggle. It was terrible. Look, it's okay if you're just playing tennis three times We were going to the gym. When you're doing endurance sports like we do, swimming, cycling, running, triathlon, you name it, it's a whole different kettle of fish. Mm. And you've got to be prepared. um, And I've actually altered my training plans to suit, like every X number of weeks. We'll do our riding and running all in the one day on the Saturday so they can have the Sunday off. And then I still get the athletes saying, what do you want me to do on Sunday? I said, I want you to do nothing. I want you to be a normal human being and go and do something with your family. Uh, For goodness sake, go. At the end of the season, I have a longer break than most squads, so I have up to six weeks. And some athletes go mad. I say, you go back and put that into your family and you give them the time. You say, right, whatever you want to do, I'm, you tell me what we're going to do and I'm going to do it. You know, and I insist, although I've had a lot of heated discussions with athletes over the years, I insist on athletes to have one day off every week mm. to be a normal human being. Put your equipment away. Be normal and put that time back. As if, if I can't get them to do that uh, for the sake of stopping training, I say use that to put that back into your family so you keep gaining more credits into your account that you can withdraw from when it comes to the hard training leading up to the big event. Yeah. And also in that last six weeks, you're to say, sorry, love, um, or whatever, um, I'm not going to be around much. You know, I can't mow the lawns. Um, I can't take uh, you know, a little junior to um, you know, football practice. I've got to, whatever it might be, and you're going to know that you have credits up in your account that you can withdraw on, and your partner's going to agree. All right? And so you've got to make, get those credits going up 12 months out before that a big event. And build them up. You want to have a lot of money or a lot of credits in your account so you can call upon. But that's just some of the funny, the sad, the good, the bad, the ugly of, of coaching. Mm. But it's like anything. You look at a CEO of a big company or someone out there who's listening right now who runs their own business or company. You take you take your business home
2: mm.
1: seven days a week. It takes a very, very good uh, business person to leave it at the office and come home uh, and separate it. That's that's a, a very good company director or owner who can separate. You've got to be able to separate. And so what I've found is most of my relations, or actually all my relations, have been involved in the sport. And if the if I wasn't the athlete who was in the sport, I made them a triathlete. <laughs> so I actually, um, got them into the sport and they had they had great success and very very well, and got a lot of benefit out of it, as in um, discipline, health, fitness, uh, achieving goals that I never thought possible. Being what I class as a normal um average human being. And uh, you know, and it was wonderful. But I actually got them into the sport as a way of being able to cope with uh what I do and how I do it. Mm. Now it always worked out well. Thank thank goodness. But there are some you say, come on, start the sport. No, they're not gonna do it. There's no way. Uh fortunately I had a partner who, who did and agreed and she did very, very well, you know, on a national toll, on a state toll in the older age groups and did a wonderful job it was an absolute pleasure to see it after year one i said this relationship's not working and the horror on her on her face i said there's only one because i was i was saying that as a lead up to what i was trying to do i said there's only one, only one solution she said what i said you have to take up the sport of triathlon and she said okay <laughs> and uh, yeah 10 years later she'd won races she won series races she, oh, it was v- wonderful and she she uh, created a whole brand new network of friends who are also into health and fitness that she never had before. Mm. So, I had a lot of benefits from it as a result. And there's some of the, the wonderful things that uh, I like to reflect on that I've helped to achieve uh, with that person. In terms of, I'm a very highly competitive athlete who wants to see success. I like success. Now, I've learned over the years as a coach that success, and I, and I, when, I, when I say here, I mean it absolutely literally. I've had people. Winning on the podium, professional, and as age groupers, I've had people cross absolute last across the line out of 1,000 or 1,500 athletes. They were the absolute last. And to me, uh, success to me was the fact that next year they came second last, mm. right? Rather than being on the last page, they were second last in the or they or they improved their time 15 or 20 minutes over that five-hour or six-hour event. To me, that is success. Not necessarily winning. You know, some of my some of my personal best races, I didn't win, but mm. they were so pleasing and so uh, over you know overcoming uh, setbacks that that fifth or that tenth or whatever it was was actually as satisfying or more satisfying than an actual win. And I've seen with athletes, I've had athletes who just improved on a previous year and they're that excited, but they got no hope of winning. But that to me, that day, in an event I had like 20 athletes, that to me, that was my, um, that was my reward, seeing them do that. Don't get me wrong, you know, I still get a huge sense out of someone winning, but there might be that one race or that one athlete on a certain day who just is something special that just captured my heart and uh, that made all the difference. And I went home that day and just, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about the whole day. Yes, I had five athletes winning. Mm. Wonderful. And they'll get my time as well, or on a certain day, they might have a win that was incredible. And that took my thoughts for the rest of the day or the next week. But there was an athlete who, you know, was at the back of the field who just did something phenomenal. And that to me was the success that I look for. So success does come in all different areas, not necessarily winning.
0: Yeah, it's definitely all relative to the person. And those coming second last might actually be more of an achievement for that person than winning for the other person
1: absolutely but and as a human being as a partner you have to look for those things you're not going to go and read a book or do a a course on how to do this what i've learned you know after you know 23 years of coaching you can't learn from a book you cannot go and do a course like like i have a diploma of remedial massage when I, i remember finishing the course um and this is the analogy i use And you can use the same analogy with every industry, sport, relationship, anything in life. It was like when I finished and got my diploma, uh, I looked at it I thought, you know what? I've got all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, the 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle here. But it's like someone upended it on the floor and they said, there you are. You've got all the pieces. Mm -hmm. You know it all. It's there. I'm saying, yeah, but it's not a picture. And it took me years and years to piece each of those pieces together, to slowly piece all the information that I had been taught and learned to actually make it look like a picture. And once it looked like a picture, then I realized I now understood. Mm. All right. So anyone, you know, who goes and does a degree or a PhD and says, right, I've got my stick, I'm ready to go. Forget it. You're not going to take over the world. You know nothing. All you have is a brain uh, and an intellect full of uh, intellectual clutter. Right. wisdom and knowledge only comes through time and you can't learn that in a book or a course right. I had the opportunity throughout my coaching career and at athletic career to meet some of the most wisest knowledgeable switched on people uh, in the world uh, who weren't national coaches who weren't uh, sitting on in executive boards of your association they were sitting in a corner somewhere you know, they had a small following or some didn't even have a following at all And I learned from them stuff you will never, ever learn in the book. And I learned that stuff. And what I've noticed in um, coaching up at national level coaches, they don't understand this. And if you're not ticking all their boxes and, and, you know, uh, shaking hands with the right people, you're not going to get into the system at that national level as a coach if that's where you want to go. I've learned stuff that none of them are ever going to know. And I still get criticized today for my coaching methods because they're different from the mainstream. The stuff that I learned from people was that much wisdom that they didn't need to be involved in the National Boys. They didn't need the recognition. They didn't need their 15 minutes of fame. They didn't care about that stuff. They didn't mean, it didn't mean nothing to them. What was important to them was helping other people and putting that knowledge and seeing that person get a huge uh, kick out of what they're doing from being helped by that coach or that person with that knowledge. And those people I've met over the years, they've been far more available than any course or any degree i've I've ever got in my life it wasn't until i met those people and learnt from them and then practiced and practiced it that all the knowledge and all the books and all the courses then made sense Mm. for those who who know what i'm talking about yeah you'll know what i'm talking about those who've been involved in sport or even career anything even relationships you'll know it only comes with with time knowledge and wisdom only comes with time. Even though time is a construct, it doesn't actually exist. But if you want to get into quantum physics, but that's another subject.
0: I took a quote from when you were inducted into the triathlon hall of fame. I can't I remember what, what did I say. <laughs> I'll read it to you because you've kind of said it already. My wow. career was certainly a roller coaster ride, and I don't look back and celebrate all the races I had and successes I had but the amazing people I met and learning the meaning of a true champion, knowing it is someone who gets knocked down, but who gets back up and keeps going no matter who you are or where you finished. And I think that sums up the question of what benefit sport has had for you. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Uh, Well, um, you know, I've always, what you just said, that I I follow that religious, almost religiously. Mm. I actually can't remember what interview I said it in after I was inducted into the Australian Hall of Fame, but I cannot remember that word for it all the time. I'm trying to visualise who it was I was talking to about that. I can't remember, but um, wow, thanks for bringing that. Up. that that's that's wonderful. You just um, yeah, that, I, I'm really thank you very much for bringing up, Fiona. that up. You know, that's wonderful. I, I still live by, by by those beliefs, but to hear it from someone else that I've quoted somewhere. Wow, that, that's, that's great. Um, here's one thing. For all of those people who have ever been world class, one thing it's taught me, it's humility,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, to be humble. Because when you are putting everything on the line, that's probably, there are a lot of things I've learned and taken benefit from, but probably one of the highest ones is humility. For all those athletes out there who have reached a huge level, um you've got to you've got to look within There's a certain point in your career you're going to have to turn within to find out what you're made of mm. um and uh, what it takes to get that next step to be the best and it's extremely confronting it's all done in very small increments over many many years so it's like a natural progression you don't even know it. it's happening half the time but there are moments that you'll go it'll like it'll hit you in the, like, like a rock in your face you know uh you'll say oh my god and you'll be You'll see people in the middle of an event or a race, you think they're just staring down the road or something. They're not staring down the road. They're actually turning within and looking within. But to do that, it looks like they're staring down the road, Mm. uh, literally. But they're actually turning within to find that something extra that separates them from the masses. What I've actually noticed a lot in sport, having been at the very top, is that the ones who are trying to make it, the ones who are getting entry-level in, they're the ones who usually have more of an attitude or the arrogance or the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, thinking that they're better than what they are, the, the slight narcissistic sort of qualities because most of those who have made it to the top don't have that because they've had to turn within and find out what they're made of. And that's very uh, humbling and it creates humility. And that's why you'll find that 99% of all the world's best are extremely humble people. Mm. Um, and funny enough, uh, quite easily to approach, but to a lot of people, they'll be too afraid to approach, thinking they are, they are almost demigods, but they're not. In actual fact, I find myself when I was in the sport, I found it harder to approach and talk to the world-class athletes who I was racing with and someone I was beating than I was to just talk to the average age grouper. I found it more comfortable because I felt very, um, someone was not worthy in their presence, even though I was beating them some weeks. Quite, it's quite uh, contradictory, they're uh, hypocritical, but, Probably the, the biggest thing I've, brought, I've come out of it from this sport, not only as an athlete, but as a coach, is humility. That's not to say that I uh, won't have a, a bit of a, a bit of a uh, an upsurge of arrogance or uh, narcissism every now and then. We all do. I can lose the plot just as good as anybody else. But overall, humility. Uh, oh, and the other thing too, through my life's journey in this sport for the last thirty six years, is I don't think I've quite nailed it, but I'm nearly there. Is accountability for oneself probably one of the best revelations I came up with through my journey, and my journey has been fraught with uh, a lot of setbacks, uh, a lot of trauma, a lot of damage, uh, mixed in with all the successes. I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy what I what I put myself through. All of that um, it's been quite traumatic, and you know you've got to have a strong constitution just to get through it. But one of the best, most great revelations I've had through this 360 journey was the day I, I sort of realised that I have to be responsible for everything I create into my life. Yes, someone might come up and do something bad, or you know I've been hit by I've been hit by cars and then my legs broke, and you know I was out for a whole year in with, with rehab and got back. But the but the mere fact that I chose to get on my bike that day and be at that exact moment at that exact time makes me also as responsible for the outcome as the person who hit me in the car. I may not have initially caused it, but I'm equally responsible. But I might get into, you know, uh, you know I've, had a, I've had relationship breakups, right? And I could point the finger, but I'm equally as responsible for creating that. I've seen people have a bit of a fight. I've had, you know, I had a couple of kids in the squad fighting, you know, brother and sister. And I said, stop. And they looked at me and I said, right. And, and one of them goes, oh, he, he started it. And the other one says, no, she started it. And this is a true story. I said, okay, the both of you, what I want you to do is I want you to clap your hands together for me. Clap, clap, clap like that. So they did that. I said, now, I want you to try and clap your hands with one hand. Off you go. And they're looking at me stupidly like I'm an idiot. I said, come on, just try and clap with one hand and then doing the motion with one hand. I said, right, you can't clap with one hand. It takes two ca- hands to clap. In other words, it takes two to tango. Mm. It will always take two people to create a situation. Now, someone might have been traumatised more as a result of the other person. But that person being traumatised is also equally responsible for helping to create that situation. And then the day that you can then take responsibility and accountability for your actions that caused that, whether you got destroyed by someone or something um, and you take full responsibility for helping to create that, that's the day you'll wake up and you'll say, right, now that I am responsible for the outcome of that, I can actually do something about changing that. It's when you sit there and become a victim and want to blame everyone else or everything else for happening, you can't do anything about it. You'll never be able to change it because you class yourself as a victim. Mm. And I, I'm not saying I've nailed it perfectly yet. I'm still, you know, I still go through my poor me and, you know, uh, you know, in you feel like the victim a bit, but I, I, I sit back and analyze and say, right, hang on. No, no, no. I am equally responsible for creating that outcome. What can I learn or experience from that person or that thing? How can I let them help me? How can they become a teacher for me today? That's a hard thing to do, because your ego doesn't want to do that. Your ego wants to, uh, you know, rip that person in half, or, or you know, look, look for a bunch of people to to cry on, you know, cry on their shoulder and get sympathy. Uh, we all go through that. So through my journey in this sport, as a coach and athlete, probably humility and taking responsibility for self, no matter what the situation. Because isn't it funny? When you win, you pat yourself on the back and say, yep, that was all uh-huh. me. When things go bad, how many people turn around and pat themselves on the back and say, well, I, I created that bad as well. They all want to blame the equipment, blame the, the coach, blame the, 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 the situation, blame the weather, blame the whatever. But how many people actually turn and say, hey, I helped create that terrible performance as well. Right? I'm uh-huh. responsible for that. Just as so I'm responsible for creating that victory. Uh, and that's that's a great revelation in life when you wake up to that all the great masters on you know and and people who who understand life they they worked it out years ago they've known that for thousands of years but anyway uh so they're the two big things i think i've learned from i've experienced and learned from this sport which i'm uh, forever grateful
0: yeah that's amazing and i hope i get to the point you are and i can blame no one else but myself in every situation <laughs> but i know sometimes uh, i look at things and i'm like oh todd why did you leave that on the floor and i stubbed my toe <laughs>
1: well, well the funny thing is let's play the game here then you could say well why wasn't i looking
0: well that's it it, it was my fault for walking there
1: uh, exactly well you chose to walk there at that exact moment that uh, todd left it there on the ground <laughs> um, so, who is ultimately responsible, or are you both responsible for creating it? Because if you'd walked half, you know, half a meter to the left, you wouldn't have hit it. Mm. And Todd not it, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, you could have um, started that walk a meter earlier and therefore overstepped it rather than hitting it. I mean, this, mm. you can think of a thousand possibilities, the what ifs, but yeah, it's uh, definitely a journey of. life. And look, when I was your age, I wanted to blame the world. I thought I was right and everyone was wrong. And I sit back and say, oh, my goodness, you know, back when I was younger, I I couldn't understand why everyone thought differently from me. Mm. And then I started realising that everyone does think differently. Everyone looks at the same situation with two sets of eyes, uh, different eyes. And um, that was a major wake-up call and a hard thing for me to process and and come to terms with. And so what do I do? I get into the world of coaching. Uh, One of the toughest things for a person like me then to have to deal with, I'm dealing with... 20 or 30 different personalities Mm. and i've got to understand that they're all approaching this differently and i'm not going to uh, see it through my eyes and all of a sudden wow what a wake up call what an opportunity i created for myself to learn or to experience that which i was very inexperienced about and that was um accepting differences in people so this sport of triathlon for me has actually been one of the greatest uh life journeys i could have ever asked for you, know, you can't you can't put a price tag on that
0: mm, yeah, and it's the benefit that sport has that people don't really think about. they're like, oh, yeah, you get fit, you get healthy, but it's all these opportunities to grow as a person that serves you in every other aspect of life
1: Oh, absolutely, but once again, you can take whatever situation you could be a prisoner of war, you could be working in the back of a factory packing gumboots boots, you could be uh a world class athlete, you could be a coach, you could be a stay-at-home mother or a stay-at-home father, what it might be. And you can say, okay, how can I use this experience to understand life better? You get people in all those areas who go through their whole life blind with blinkers on, Mm. or you can see, I mean, you can, it's like you look at someone sweeping the streets, you think, oh my God, you don't want to lose that. No. But that person has more respect this is actually a story that's, you know, a, a, a philosophical story that's been banning around for, for centuries or, you know, decades. Um, you know, the, the humble street sweeper has more respect from the community than the, uh, you know, the CEO of a company, because mm. that street sweeper takes absolute pride uh, in their job and they do the best job they can, and people throughout the community can see that and they take absolute inspiration from seeing that lowly paid street sweeper uh, experiencing such a great deal of satisfaction out of doing something so simple because they take pride in their work. And that motivates people incredibly to want to also achieve as well. I don't know quite how we got onto that subject there, but um, <laughs> what I'm saying is uh, another great life experience, just from observing people and how they go about doing it. I've used triathlon as my vehicle to experience
0: yeah, well, that's a really good point, Steve. I know you obviously give back to the community in the terms of coaching up-and-comers and grassroots-level triathletes, as well as some professional ones. Have you been involved in a project where sport has been used as a tool to develop the community?
1: Through uh, one of the athletes, who just one of the age group athletes I was helping out, they are involved with a charity, a children's charity, And I was looking for something, you know, with our sponsor team, with the bit of money I had uh, from the sponsors, to put something back into the community. And one of our financial sponsors actually revealed to me after several years of sponsoring, she said, one of the reasons we sponsor you is because you're doing something for the community, putting back into the community. She said, we don't care about, you know, whether you're winning or not. The fact Mm -hmm. that you're doing something for the community is what uh, impressed us enough to want to sponsor your team. And so I got involved with... um, about five or six years straight with Victoria's oldest children's charity called Oz Child. Some people out there listening might be familiar. Apparently, as far as I know, they're, they're no longer government backed, they do it all uh, privately. Oz Child was developed back in the 1800s, the Australian gold mining fields um, in Victoria, and all the people wanted to make their fame and fortune, you know, 150 years or whatever it was ago, uh, on the gold mines and the gold rush. Uh, you yeah, you can go up to Swan in and all those places and, and go and visit all how it was. And a lot of the kids were left to run amok whilst the, the, the parents were out trying to find gold, you know, 150 years ago. There wasn't much support back in those days, and Australia was still in its infancy. And uh, two then charities formed together to create a children's charity called Auschild. And I was wonderful being involved with them. Um, and each year I used to run a fundraiser and we used to raise money. No, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't raise a fortune. Um, I didn't understand enough about how to do it successfully, but uh, we still raised money. And uh, I remember catching up with one of the um, people who worked for Oz and she came down and gave a presentation at one of our fundraiser nights. And she said to me, after she said, We're currently working with one mother who's a single mother. She's working full time, um, but doesn't have the money for her kids to go and do activities or, or sport or activities after school. The only sport actually they could do is within the school system. She said, the money you've raised for us is going to help her two daughters take ballet lessons for the next 12 months um, that she could not afford. And that was really, um, it was wonderful. I I felt so, so chuffed that um, I could help or that we, all of us who helped, you know, support the fundraiser and the fundraiser night could help create something special for that family for the year. I mean, I've already done that. I did that for five or six years. Um, but still, great, great fond memories. I hope one day to get back and do a bit more charity work. And this time, I'd like to do it in, the, in you know, in animal welfare, uh, animal rescue, animal welfare um, stuff of that. So that's something down the track I'd like to do.
0: Are you thinking you'd like to go into um, like native animals or like rescue animals, like cats and dogs?
1: Ah, oh, you've hit my heart there. I have two cats. So basically, you know, I, I take a big, big interest in the human race and how it operates. We are the only creature on the planet that destroys its own environment.
2: Mm. No matter
1: what we do, we destroy it. Uh, and you could talk a whole new program on that. So, and like with everything else, um, we've overpopulated the world with cats and dogs and so on. Um, and so as a result of that, they're suffering terribly, aren't they? how many are being, uh, you know, at the shelters where after 12 months If they don't get adopted, they get uh, euthanized. You know, it's just so sad to see that people look at them as pests and so on, but who was responsible for crying that we were? If you look at nature, you find me anywhere in nature that is out of balance where animals, you know, if, if there's a, a famine or a drought, you know, the population will not breed to the same level. Now, People can come online if they want and they can correct me and, 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 and scientifically show me where I'm wrong. But I'm just talking very generally here. Um, nature is very well balanced. And of course, we are so removed from nature, it's not funny. And we, create, we keep creating destruction and havoc mm. because there are overindulgence in, in wanting to have animals and, and domesticated pets. So I mean, there's, there's a little area that, that takes a bit of interest in, in me coming to sports, which is what the podcast, well, a lot of it's about, is uh, wonderful. it's wonderful seeing a lot of the um, champion athletes, you know, they'll give their time to charities and, and help out and see how much inspiration that gives to their fans and followers to then go out and do the same.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, I think it's wonderful. I mean, you can sit for, an, for another podcast just talking about that in itself, um, the amount of charities and athletes, world-class athletes who are associated with them. And, uh, and who actually start up their own charities at the same time.
0: Yeah, 100%. Even um, our good old mate, Lance, has <laughs> started his own charity.
1: That's interesting. Um, I think the world's divided, just like religion, mm. um, as to those who hate Lance and those who love Lance and support him. Uh, not many people know this, um, but I say it's in fun and in, in humour that um, in the world of triathlon, Lance is a professional triathlete before he became a professional cyclist. I I like to say, uh, me too, Lance zero. In other words, he's never beaten me in a triathlon. I raced him twice. And then I add into the uh, story that he was 16 years of age and I was 22, mind you. Yeah. So, but he was as aggressive as a 16 year old professional triathlete, winning prize money and betting some of the best at 16 as he was, when he became a professional cyclist, obviously Lance, uh, you know, went through his cancer that would obviously kill most people, and he started a very worthy uh, cause, uh, which have helped millions of people. Of, of course, um, you can't fault that. Um, and even with what happened with him in sport, you still can't fault his ethics and morals in starting Live Strong, mm. regardless of what he's done right, wrong, indifference, whatever, uh, or how many people he's burnt, or how many uh, people who have been upset by what he did. He still created an incredible association, which is still running today. Mm-hmm. Yes, he had to step down through ethics and morals, which I think was probably the right thing to do uh, in the circumstances. But you've got to delve into cycling just briefly. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you right now, all those professional cyclists, and he was just the scapegoat. because He was the top of the tree. If you, if you get the, 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 the top dog, you can then break the, the, the system underneath it. I'm going to tell you right now, Lance. And every other one of those cyclists were doing the same thing. He just mm-hmm. did it better, that's all. And had a bit of network around him. But I'll guarantee you, virtually all those professional cyclists, whether they were caught, whether they weren't caught, Lance, whoever, you could you could depend on them for help if you asked them for it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: a lot of people from the average community who aren't involved with high level sport will say, Oh, you know, evilness, you know, you know, evilness, you know, whatever. But not really. Um, they did what was necessary. They did what everyone else was doing. Uh, they just stepped into the circle and played the game, and they played by the rules. And that's what the rules required them do. Mm. Or else, if they weren't prepared to do that, hop out of the circle, go home, and, and you know, and dig holes for a living. You know, good luck. But most of them are all incredibly uh, loyal, loving, and helpful people who just got caught up in the sport. They got caught up in the system, getting involved, getting involved with drugs, unfortunately, uh, because if they didn't do that and follow the same and do everything that everyone else was doing, they would have been left behind and they would have been given the flick from their team uh, and told to go home. You know, here's, here's the airfare, go dig holes, we don't care. See you later. Where's the next person? But, yeah, so people don't understand the behind the scenes
2: hmm.
1: uh, of these athletes. Fortunately, I got out of the sport, of, I retired before, um, that sort of thing became more rife. Uh-huh. I should be very careful talking about that because I don't know enough about it. I'll get out uh, earlier. Hey, and once again, everyone has to take their own personal responsibility if they want to get to high-level sport. Uh, what are the stakes? Um, mm-hmm. what are, what's at stake? And uh, as a, a good friend of mine, uh, his wife said to me one, one, many, many years ago, oh, 20 years ago when I relationship broke relationship breakup, she said, Steve, if you want to step into the circle to play the game, you have to abide by the rules. If you don't like the rules, hop out of the circle and go home. And I live by that rule that she taught me that day 20 years ago. And that's the same with anything you do, with sport. If you're involved in a, in a high level sport that does have drugs involved, if you want to step into the circle to play the game, you've got to abide by the rules. If you don't like the rules, hop out. But that's the hidden world, too. I mean, you've got to, once you're in that circle, that circle of trust, you have to live by the rules.
0: Hmm. That leads pretty good into the last question, Steve. So we've seen sport evolve, especially triathlon, evolve in your 36 years involved in it. Where do you see the future of triathlon
1: or sport? I was talking to another, uh, sorry, to a very successful coach who's been a a coach of of some of the best professional triathletes in Australia who have also been some of the best in the world over the long-distance races, very highly respected we were chatting about this and him along with another coach who, an Australian coach who was actually a coach of the uh, Scottish triathlon team, national team for a number of years. Uh, and the whole three of us are chatting away. And we were talking in general because this other coach, uh, the professional coach, he's actually moved into psychology. Mm. And I think, I, I don't know if he's, he's got his degree yet, uh, leading to his pre-show. I'm not too sure where he's at, but he's highly, that's his new career path as well as coaching. And we're all talking and all on the same page talking about um, the future of sport in the old days, probably even before you were born, uh, it was extremely hard and extremely tough. And if you didn't make the grade, you got your ass kicked and spat out the the back and out the door. Uh, If you go. But humanity is changing and sport is changing. I think the world's becoming more compassionate and sincere and understanding. Uh, And I think we're now starting to also realise that a lot of world-class athletes uh, are left broken at the end of their career
2: Mm.
1: and that we have to actually start looking at nurturing athletes in sport, not in triathlon, but all sports through their career and guiding them and making sure that mentally, emotionally, or mind, body, spirit uh, is being uh, guided carefully. The mental and emotional side of it, is just as important as the physical side of it. Yes, you can see a world-class athlete. And I've met them before. And I've seen them at uh, the end, the other end, uh, and just listen to their story. Uh, had they had the emotional support and so on, they, they may be in a better place now. Now, you've got to remember, once again, that athlete chose to be a world-class athlete. Uh-huh. But at the same time, I think sport, sporting associations, whether it's cricket, football, tennis, swimming, cycling, whatever, they need to now add into their program uh, a psychological aspect not I'm talking let's go and see the sports psychology to get the best performance out of you I'm talking about psychology and, and support and counselling to help deal with the pressures of life in general on their way through because um, there have been too many broken athletes uh, come out of world class sport and I think the way the sport is starting to go because the world is changing I think we're becoming more compassionate and starting to see that the necessity To have that as an integral part of a world-class athlete's progression to world-class sport, uh, that you must nurture them and look after them emotionally as well. I I, I can be as hard as I can be the hard, hard bastard like anybody else, and tough. I I thrive off the toughness. But there've been plenty of times where I've been curled up in a ball on the on the side somewhere out on a running trail somewhere, or in a room at home, cry my eyes out saying, you know, I need, you know, what do I do? Fortunately, uh, you know, I've been able to figure it out myself. But Mm -hmm. a lot of athletes who haven't been able to do it, and that's where we need to look more at hard. And and even an athlete comes at entry level, each year they get better and better. They say, oh, I'm getting better. How can I get better again? Right, got to invest more time, uh, money and effort. And all of a sudden, you know, years later, they become world class. Mm. And the stakes are so high. And when someone's at that high, like, once again, as I was saying before about athletes on, on the podium with a smile on their face, you don't see the 95% of the time or 99% of the time that they're crying with blood, sweat and tears, that they're suffering relationship problems like every Joe like. Blow, they're suffering family problems. They're suffering financial problems. They're suffering health problems, just like every other normal person. But you don't get to see that because behind closed doors Mm. but when they crash they crash from a higher position because they're higher up with Mm. in in what they've invested into their life the sport and they'll crash and they'll crash hard and now that social media and is so rife like 40 years ago it was all kept quiet social Mm -hmm. media you're now on the front page of Facebook or Instagram or some other uh, YouTube or whatever it might be, and you are being destroyed by the media and then by the public who've got all got their chance now to voice their opinion on social media and further destroy the athlete. So athlete is then in absolute heap. Such the cruelty of social media today, and I could talk again on hours on that, tearing the fabric of society apart. So we've got to be very uh, careful and nurture our athletes. The young athletes who you could be champions and so on as well and you've got to nurture them and that's how sport has to change just create that better support network uh love compassion uh and humanity in general yeah that's where it's going to head i'll guarantee you
0: i really like that idea and you would see it as a coach you've touched on it a little bit before but you're developing the whole person rather than just an athlete like their performance is great but if they're Failing at every other aspect of their life, then we as coaches could do a better job of helping them out.
1: Yep. When I was developing as an athlete, I didn't have any of that. We didn't have any of that.
0: Mm.
1: So basically, myself and a lot of people from my era, we basically had to learn these skills uh, and mechanisms ourselves. I remember talking to a um, clinical counselor who had a little bit of association with, their, with the, the squad for a short while. Um, I said, look, you know, look, I've, I've learned coping mechanisms to to deal with the pressure of this. He said, stop right there. I said, what? He said, well, the fact that you've had to learn coping mechanisms is showing me that you have a problem.
2: Mm. Well,
1: sorry, no, I don't mean it in that way, but he's saying that the fact that you've had to create coping mechanisms means that there is an issue there to begin with that has to be fixed. And I stopped and thought, oh, I thought creating coping me- mechanisms was a normal part. Well, it is in life. We all have to learn coping me- mechanisms to get through life, but and he got me thinking about that. I thought, wow, you know, and our whole life has been about making, creating coping mechanisms to deal with the pressures that we put upon ourselves. And it doesn't matter with school, university, work, life, relationships. It's all the same thing. You just dress up differently. You know, mm-hmm. sports is dressed up differently from something else. As I said, you know, I've seen career people who are professional at their jobs, what well, any professional athlete is, but we have to put for the, the safety and the well-being of humanity more love and compassion into this tough environment of trying to be a world class and i'll guarantee you every national governing body wants to be that gold medal winning olympian have Olymp- the olympian or whatever and they're investing millions of dollars yeah there's no room for error
2: mm.
1: if the coach is up, up to scratch they get the ass if the athletes up to scratch they get the ass and there's no um, support network for that athlete who dedicated 10 years and then got the click. No, look at the racehorse industry. How many racehorses are just put down because they can't race anymore? Mm. There needs to be an industry. I'll, I'll use racehorsing racehorse as, as an example of what I'm talking about in human sport. There should be a system set up through the governing bodies and through the coaches or the trainers and the owners and everything where a, a fee is put in every year so that at the end of a racehorse's career, they can be, you know, sent to uh, a reti- like what do you call it a retirement home for, for X ray sources where they can live out their life with dignity and, and love and, and compassion and be looked after. Not bloody um, uh, sent down to the glue factory and made into um, you know Tarzan's grip the next day. Oh. Um, or whatever it might be. That is wrong. That's uh-huh. wrong on every level. There needs to be more compassion and understanding. Animals here, yeah, race uh, horses and dogs, but also human beings. They're not just a commodity or a, a product that's going to sell the next, uh, you know, 100,000 pairs of Nike shoes. Mm. They're human beings who hurt and cry uh, and feel just like every other normal person. They're not robots. That's where sport's heading, I'll guarantee you.
0: Well, I'm glad sport's going to head in that direction and I'm glad that it's in an era that I'm going to grow up witnessing the change a mm. little bit more. Yeah. I've already seen it probably in swimming in the last five years. the the shift between just performance and now they've got a few programs in place and tools and strategies. So the athletes aren't chewed up and spat out the other end. They're kind of guided or given a few tools along the way.
1: That's great. And the thing is, it's not going to be just necessarily uh, associations setting up a program. It's a small trickle drip by drip that more and more people like yourself, like me or like whoever, Everyone's starting to see it, and there's, there will be a, a shift in consciousness that everyone will change eventually and see the necessity. I mean, we're seeing it in the world now. Look, that's one area that social media is very, very good. Mm. It gets everyone connected a lot quicker. Uh, for all those who are born into this area, they won't understand anything different. But from our era, we had nothing. You, know, you had a telephone and uh, you know, a letter that you wrote and it was sent off in the mail and got there you know a week later. But now everyone's connected. We can now spread the message quicker and connect. And it's, it is wonderful that I'm starting to see that too. There's a thing called, for those science buffs out there, I think called critical mass. When enough people have been subjected to a new conscious or a new idea that reaches critical mass enough people, all of a sudden the whole of humanity picks up on it.
0: Mm, that's awesome. Now, Steve... What's next for you? I know you've done a few Ultramans in the last few years. What's next in your sporting career journey?
1: Uh, well, for, for any of the listeners out there who aren't hugely uh, familiar with the sport triathlon, uh, Ultraman, it's like uh, we have this weird thing in our sport. We keep creating bigger and longer and tougher races, and we've got to come up with these weirder and and. And stranger names like Ultraman, now there's Uberman and uh, all sorts of stuff just to, uh, you know, after Iron Man. Iron Man's just like, you know, yesterday's news now. Uh, so, Ultraman, for those who don't know, it's a three day endurance triathlon. Day one is a 10 kilometer swim and 143 kilometer ride. Day two is a 280 kilometer ride. And then day three is an 84 kilometer double marathon run, all with 12 hour time limits for each of the days. Now, in 2018, I did it. Was up in Noosa, in Australia. There's only about six or so in the world, and we had one up at Noosa in in Queensland. I ran fourth overall. I won my age group and set a world record in my age group of 50 to 59 years age group. They go in 10 year age groups. I um, immediately retired from racing. I said, "That's it." Someone said, uh, "Well done, you know, uh, great effort. What are you going to do now?" I said, "I'm going to take up drinking. You know, I'm something different." <laughs> I'm only joking. I'm only joking. But I said, that's it. I've had a 35-year career of racing professionally and then age group. I've had enough. And I'm still training and still getting out there and training and keeping fit. But I'm a bit more relaxed now. So with this current pandemic that we're in, of course, it uh, it created a major uh, change to my coaching setup. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm looking at this as a bit of an opportunity in disguise. I'm still going to keep coaching, but do it as a more of a side project. Uh, still with the same sort of, Level of interest, maybe just a few less sessions a week, and build a new career because, as probably 90% of all coaches know, you don't make a huge amount of money. Yes, there are some coaches who have made an absolute fortune because they're they're geniuses at what they do, but 85% of sport, you won't make money out of being a coach. And I'm sick of being poor. So I'm developing a new career, but I will never leave the sport. I'm going to say one thing now I don't mean this in a negative way I will die in the sport. Because I, I so often say I refuse to die in a, in a wheelchair in a nursing home. So the sport is my life. I'll mm-hmm. always stay into it in in, it in some capacity and more than likely still keep coaching to some capacity. And trust me, that's not me toning down to just, just coaching a couple of weekenders. No, no, no. I still want to coach people who win with the same ferocity uh, to want to win races or do better. I'll still do that. I'll just do it on a smaller scale with less people. That's all. Yeah. So that's that. That's the future. And I challenge anyone to say that they are still as enthusiastic in their career, no matter what it is, after 35 years there. Yeah, there are people out there who will die after 50 years in their career and love every minute. But it's a hard slog. Mm. So I'm actually looking forward to make some slight changes there. once again, looking you know, you look at opportunity in disguise, so I'm looking at this pandemic as a, as a great opportunity. Uh, not as a, uh, a devastating destruction of uh, humanity no any champion will always find opportunity out of adversity and that's what you have to do so yeah i'm looking at that but i'll always stay in the sports to some degree
0: oh well that's really exciting steve i'm really happy that you still love it but you want to make a few slight changes mm. to make sure that you do love it until the till the end
1: die oh, yes <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. I really appreciate the time and the effort and the in-depth discussion that you've given us.
1: Well, thank you, Fiona. I really appreciate this too. What I have found, uh, having been a loner and an introvert, is I love to talk. I love to (laughs) chat. It's been wonderful. I appreciate that.
0: Thank you for listening to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. If you'd like to be on the show, please send us a message. We would love to hear from you. Until next time.